It's, I'm excited to be here at the first Sunday of Advent, and uh, it's exciting for me because I'm learning new traditions and new uh, things that we do here at Spring Creek. And some of those I am finding out as they happen. And uh, that's exciting for me. Uh, I knew that there was an acolyte, which I had to look up this week how to spell acolyte. I didn't know how to spell that word. Um, and someone said, so we'll introduce the hymn. And I said, will the person, will the acolyte then come down the aisle? And they said, yes. And I said, well, that's great, because I had no idea how this was going to work. Um, so I'm just excited to be here and uh, to enter into this season. Before we get into our sermon this morning, would you pray with me? God, we come into this time opening up your word, and I pray that you would speak to us this morning uh, through me or despite me. May the, words of our, uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's, it's Advent season. We've started into maybe some of our traditions of decorating the Christmas tree and, and uh, getting things ready, filling up our calendar with all kinds of Christmas celebrations. We've started to sing familiar Christmas carols. Uh, maybe you're in the midst of planning dinners with family and friends and all of that excitement. This is a time for familiar sites of the manger scene or the nativity scene or the creche or whatever you call it at your house. Maybe you can recite Linus's speech to Charlie Brown uh, from the Peanuts Christmas Carol, which is found in Luke, uh, if you want to go and find that script. Many of us have heard this Christmas story again and again and again, and sometimes there's a danger that it just becomes too familiar, and we say, I've heard this story 30 times, 40 times, 100 times, and we start to think, well, we know what this Christmas season is all about. So during our Advent time, I want to take a look at some stories that maybe we don't always think of as Christmas stories, uh, some ways that other gospel writers talk about God coming and taking on flesh and what that means for us. So these are going to be our unexpected Christmas stories. So for now, we'll skip over the familiar Matthew and Luke tellings of the Christmas story. Mark doesn't deal with the Christmas story, really. He jumps right into Jesus' baptism. So this week, and actually next week, we're going to take a look at two ways that John talks about Jesus coming. I really like John because John's version of the gospel is very different. He doesn't tell the story the same way that the others do, which isn't a bad thing. Uh, neither one's right or wrong. Uh, John has a flair for the dramatic, the, the cosmic. He wants us to get the big picture of what's happening when God takes on flesh. John doesn't tell us about angels singing or shepherds or wise men, Bethlehem. He doesn't talk about any of that. John's version of the gospel is probably the last gospel to get written down. Some scholars believe that John may have been able to read Matthew, Mark, and Luke and, and knew what they had already said and didn't feel it 
necessary to repeat what had already been written down. So John wants to tell us a little bit different version of things. If you want to read, for instance, the Sermon on the Mount, you can go to Matthew. If you want a quick, hitting, action-packed version of the gospel, go read Mark. If you want uh, a lot of detail in what happens in Jesus' life, you can go to Luke. But John wants his audience to understand some of the deeper realities of Jesus. He wants to use imagery to call our attention to something really, really big. And so this morning we are looking at John and the beginning of chapter 1, which is called the prologue to John's gospel. John does us a favor through this very thick theological gospel in that he lays out a lot of the groundwork right at the beginning of his story. This includes what many scholars believe to be a hymn of the early church in verses 1 to 5. So John begins his story In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into His being through Him, and without Him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in Him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. John wants to go way back before Bethlehem. He wants to go back to the beginning of everything. And there at the beginning of everything is the Word. And the Word was God, part of God. This word in the Greek is logos. Uh, It often just means the word, how we would use word. I'm saying a word, this word means But in John's time, it also had a lot of philosophical meanings for Jews and Greeks. We use this um, suffix uh, in some of our language today, biology, geology. And usually we mean that to be a study of life or a study of geos, rocks, uh, things like that, right? But for John, it meant something more like the rational explanation of God. Here is the explanation of who God is. John begins his story in the beginning. What other passage of Scripture comes to mind when you hear those words? Genesis. Spoiler alert with the children's story. In the beginning beginning. John wants us to hear those words and think, wait a minute, I've heard that before. I've heard that in Genesis. So John takes us way back to the beginning. This is the story that begins with the eternal divine creator of the universe, the one who spoke the word and everything was created. John says the word came to shine into the darkness, and he gives us a little bit of a spoiler for the rest of the gospel. The darkness does not overcome the light. He writes in verse 6 then, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. 
we're introduced to John the Baptist, who was sent to testify, to proclaim who this word is, who this light is. And so we're beginning to move from this big picture of God, God at the very beginning, and we're starting to move to a a historical event. There was a man whose name was John. We've moved from this eternal, cosmic, uh, before everything, and we're starting to move into history. Verse 9, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. This world created through God speaking, created through the word, and when God in the word enters into the creation, creation doesn't understand. It doesn't know who God is. As the people look at Jesus, they, they're not sure who he really is. And this is a theme that plays throughout the Gospel of John of people not knowing, not really knowing who Jesus is. The world didn't even recognize its own creator. Then John lays out the saving work of the word, of the light come into the world. Through the light, through the word, we can become children of God. John's good news is right up at the very front of his gospel. You don't need to go searching too far into the gospel of John to find out what the good news is all about. Then we get to a very thick portion of this scripture. In verse 14, John writes, And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me, because he was before me. It's interesting. John says, He was before me. He existed before me. I know it looks like he was born after me. I know it looks like he's younger than me. But before I lived, this light, this word existed. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is the first time in this whole section of Scripture that the name of Jesus is mentioned. Up until this point, it has been the Word, the light. But now that Word, that light, God who was at the very beginning takes on humanity. And it's not some nameless event. God takes on humanity and we call it Jesus. Yeshua bar Yosef, who comes and lives in around 3 or 4 B.C. That's when he's born. And he lives and he breathes and he walks among humanity. Our scripture said he lived among us. The message that I read this morning, uh, Eugene Peterson says, he moved into the neighborhood Uh, The NIV might be closest to the right translation here. It says, he made his dwelling among us. But this picture 
that John gives us is of God setting up his tabernacle in the midst of the people of Israel. Think back to the Old Testament in Exodus. They put this, they build the tabernacle, and it is an expression of God's presence among them. God's manifestation in the middle of his people. John says, now God is coming and making his presence known in the middle of humanity. God comes and lives with us. God comes and sets up camp within humanity. This is what we call the incarnation. It's this big theological term, incarnation. Uh, if you've ever gone and ordered some kind of Spanish dish, con carne, it's with meat, same uh, root there. God with meat on, God with flesh on, God con carne. Grace and truth came through Jesus the eternal divine creator of all, the alpha and the omega, now enters into time and space. And John says no one can see God. But if we really want to know what God is like, we can look at Jesus. We can look at God with flesh on in the person of Jesus. Now we read this and I think, okay, well this is Maybe Pastor Adam's trying to put a different twist on a familiar story, but it's still Jesus coming. It's still Jesus in Bethlehem. What does it mean for us? What's the big deal? God takes on flesh, so what? But God with flesh, the incarnation is enormous to us because God enters into our mess. God takes on the fragility of being an infant baby. Think of all the things that go into checking a newborn baby at the hospital. They're born and they're checking heart and, and lungs and joints and genetics and all this stuff for, for a couple of days. When we were in the hospital, it seemed like every couple of minutes, a nurse was coming in or a doctor was coming in and poking or prodding or examining, doing all of this stuff, and you're there for a couple of days with just this constant checking, and then they send you home, and they tell you you don't have to see a doctor for a week, and I thought, well, who's coming and checking this child to make sure we haven't done something to it in the meantime, and honestly, we loaded up Jameson to bring him home the first time, and I thought, God, what are we doing? We are going to kill this child. Life can be so fragile, you start asking all kinds of questions. And then in the hospital, I don't know what they did when your kids were born. Uh, at Lancaster General, when Jameson was born, we had to watch these videos about SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome. And we had to watch this video about your car seat being properly installed. I was like, I have no idea if we have that thing in correctly for all, uh, this is just, and then you got to, are they sleeping on their bellies? Are they sleeping on their backs? I don't know which one is it. And if you get it wrong, it could be tragic. Did I bolt the dressers to the walls? What college are they picking? Who are they marrying? What happens if life 
so fragile. And God enters into that. God comes and lives as one of us, experiencing what we experience. Taking up residence with us, feeling our pain, feeling our sorrow, experiencing our violence, experiencing our hatred. God knows what that's like. God enters into the circumstances of the other. Not from a distance, but getting right into the thick of things. Think about it. Jesus is born on the backside of the Roman Empire in some podunk town called Bethlehem in a crappy barn in a feed trough. God enters in to our mess. But Jesus enters in bringing good news of love and grace, of light amidst darkness. But not all humanity chooses to receive that grace. And yet the word comes just the same. See, God enters the mess in the incarnation of Jesus the Christ, and you and I are called to be formed into the image of Christ. And so what does it mean for us to be molded into the image to reflect this incarnation? What does it mean for us to move into the neighborhood, to live with, to dwell with others? What does it mean for us to enter into the mess of others' lives? As Jesus entered into the fragileness of life, what does that mean for us? Do we risk getting a little dirt, animal crap on our hands as we enter into the lives of others? We need to genuinely enter into the lives, into the pain, into the messiness and the circumstances of others. The truth is that some come to find the light and the life of the Word of God in Jesus. Some might believe in His name and become children of God, and some might not. That's not necessarily our job. It's ours to enter into the lives, not to look down on, not necessarily to come to the rescue of people, not to beat people up more, but simply to move into their neighborhood, to dwell and to abide with others. God was willing to enter into the mess, to come down and to be in our midst. I wonder if we're willing to enter into the mess of others, to enter into the the messiness of life with others, to dwell with them, to abide with them, to stay with them. I think the incarnation is still powerful. The idea of giving body to or physical expression to the love and to the grace of God. This is ours to do, not just at Christmas, but all year. 
through all life. To go and to be an expression of God's love and God's grace to others around us. Amen.